So we as Christians, we like to encourage one another. We, like, we, we know that's part of our job description. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to speak encouraging words to one another. But sometimes what we do is we fall into Christianese. We fall into saying things that really good intentions, but they don't, they don't necessarily help people or they may not even sometimes be accurate. And I, I know you know this because you probably do this. You've probably had this done to you. But just, just some examples, just not trying to point any fingers or anything, just some examples, things that sometimes we say that we think, oh, this is really going to help somebody, and it doesn't really help somebody. Like when, when somebody's struggling, we're like, hey, when God closes a door, he opens a window. <laughs> what? Is that what God is saying? Like, hey, I shut this door, so find another way in. That's what he's wanting you to do. It's like, yeah, still get in there, just make it harder. No, when God shuts a door, you should probably change the address. Like, go somewhere else and look for God's plan, because it's not to crawl through the window. He's either going to open the door or shut it. It doesn't even make sense. When God closes the door, hey, he'll open a window. Just squeeze through that thing. That'll be great. No, not so helpful, really, if you stop and think about it. You know, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. You know who would love to hear that? The Apostle Paul. He would love that, really. Oh, oh, the safest place to be is what I'm doing. That's cool. That's why I was stoned and shipwrecked and beaten and tortured. Like, that's great. I'm in prison. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. It's the best place to be, but guys, it's not always safe. No guarantee of that. Um, I, I love this one. God works in mysterious ways, y'all. You know, that's not a Bible verse, right? We, we, we've heard this so many times, we think it's in the Bible. It's, it's, it's a line from a hymn, which I'm sure it's a great hymn, but it's not a Bible verse. And God does do things that are beyond our comprehension. He, his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. That's all true. But you don't have to be Nancy Drew to figure out God's will for your life, all right? We don't... The Hardy Boys, you don't have to be that. Like, this is, here's his will. It's, he's revealed it in his word. This is who he is, what he, what he, how he wants us to respond to who he is. It's not a mystery. It's God showing us in his word very, very clearly what he wants us to do. And so, yeah, he, there's an element that he works in different ways that we don't always understand. But he's not trying to make it hard for us to figure out and follow him either. <laughs> and... This last one is one of my favorites because we use it a lot at IGO, and we use it at IGO because we don't know what it means, just so you know that. Like, we'll go into an event like our banquet or a launch box or one of our base camps, and we'll go, you know what we need to do? We just need to let go and let God. <laughs> we get out of the way and let God do his thing. I, I don't even know what that means. I think, like, God wants to work through us, right? So why would I get out of the way or... I don't know what I'm holding on to in that moment either. Like, I need to let go. Okay, what? I, just let go and let God. It's just changing one letter, but it doesn't really make sense. I don't, I don't know. We say these things. We're like, we're trying to help people. We're trying to encourage people. If you stop and think about some of the things that we say, sometimes they don't really help. They don't really encourage. But there's this other thing that we say to people all the time, and it kind of gets muddy here because this is so true, and it's this. Jesus knows how you feel. And the reality is that as true as that is, sometimes we say that to somebody and you, you, you can almost feel them checking out. Yeah, but he's God. Yeah, he took on flesh, but he was still God. And so, I, like, I know he knows how I, how I feel, but I'm not sure he's really, really in touch with it in this very moment. 
But here's what the Bible tells us over and over and over, that when Jesus took on flesh, that he experienced what we experienced, that he feels what we, we feel, that he knows. He really does know how we feel. And as we're looking at this story today in this passion narrative, the, the, the Easter story of Jesus heading to the cross, I, I thought it would be helpful for us to stop and look at the story because there's so many different ways you can do this. There's this, this story that we're in right now in Matthew is, is a familiar story to most of us. I, and I love how Scott did that last week where he was talking about Jesus' prayer in the garden and how, man, everything he expresses in that prayer we can so identify with. Because it's this picture of a Jesus who's suffering. It's a picture of a Jesus who's going to the cross. It's a picture of a Jesus who really does know how we feel. And I hope that that's encouraging as we look at this. And I, I, Allison, you're welcome. I just had you read a few verses here. But this, this whole passage goes from 2647 through 2726. It's a huge story, and I just let her read an intro to get us started. But I want to look at the story, and I want to make some observations about what it shows us in this part of the story about how Jesus knows how we feel. So back in 26, verse 47, Jesus is still speaking. Judas came. One of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Skip down to verse 56. But all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All the disciples left him and fled. So guys, Jesus knows how it feels to be betrayed by someone he trusts. Jesus knows how that feels. To have someone that you trust completely betray you. I mean, this is Judas. He's one of the 12. It actually says that. One of the 12. He's one of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to follow him. He's had a front row seat to all of Jesus' ministry, all the healings, all the miracles, everything. Judas has seen it. He's seen people walk away. That They came blind and they walk away with being able to see. He knows the power. He knows everything. He's seen every part of this. He's one of Jesus' trusted friends and followers. And in this moment, he betrays him. And Jesus knows exactly how that feels. He really knows how it feels when someone that you trust betrays you. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had someone that you thought you could trust betray you? Turn on you? Where they completely didn't meet that expectation at all? Has, has someone ever betrayed you? What I'm asking is, are you a person? If, you, if you're a human and you interact with the other humans, this has probably happened on some level to you at some point. And what you need to hear today is if we look at this part of the story is that Jesus knows exactly how that feels. He, he gets it, every bit of it. He knows how it feels. And so they, they seize him. It wasn't just Judas, right? All of them fled. All of them left him. In verse 57, it says, Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So we kind of know that Peter did leave him and 
He, he fled like they did, but then he started following, but he kept a safe distance because he wanted to see what was going on. Verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So don't miss verse 59. They were seeking false testimony so they could put him to death. You know it's not going to be a fair trial when the verdict is already determined before the trial happens. When the verdict has already been issued before there's even a charge brought against them. They're like, hey, who's got something they can say bad about this guy? It doesn't matter if it's true. Come on, bring it. We need some false testimony. We need something to convict this guy. We want to put him to death. Just so you know, they're putting him to death in the end because he said he was God. In their culture, when the world says, no, Jesus can't be God, that's impossible. He's just a good teacher, a prophet, whatever, a good example. No, the reason they killed him was because he claimed to be God. But here in this part of the story, they're just, they've captured him, they've arrested him, they brought him in, and now they're drumming up accusations against him. They're seeking false testimony. They're trying to find some reason for them to sentence him to death. And Jesus, guys, Jesus knows how it feels to be falsely accused. He knows how that feels. When someone says something about you that's not true, and they start a rumor about you out there, and it's not true, it's a it's false, it's, it's, it's bad information, but the, the, that rumor just spreads and everybody then thinks that about you. Jesus knows exactly how that feels to be wrongly accused, to be falsely accused of something. Have you ever, you ever been falsely accused of something? Or somebody said something about you that you knew wasn't true, but you couldn't figure out how to stop it? You couldn't have, you know, like, oh no, this is, this is going out there. If, you're, if you ever put yourself out in public in any way, this is probably going to happen to you. If you get yourself so public that you have Google reviews about your company or your business or what you're doing, you're going to get some pretty crazy stuff on the Google reviews. Don't read the reviews. That's my advice. Because people will falsely accuse you of stuff. They'll say stuff that's not true. They'll, they'll make up their own version of the story. And Jesus knows exactly how that feels. They're looking for false testimony against them. They want to put them to death. They just need a reason. Anything will do. He knows how that feels. Verse 65, when Jesus basically said, he's God, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses, witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? <laughs> Jesus knows how it feels to be mocked and attacked. Jesus really, really does know how it feels to be mocked and attacked. It was interesting to me when you look at these trials, like when he's before Caiaphas and the high priest, religious leaders, most of the time he remains silent. He doesn't even answer their accusations. They're making up accusations. He just remains silent. And then he's going to go to, they're going to take him because they got to steal the deal with the Romans. So they're going to take him to Pilate. And they're going to put him on trial before Pilate. Which I don't know if you've ever noticed that but Pilate, if you look in your Bibles, it actually is spelled the same way as Pilate. <laughs> coincidence? I'm not sure that's a coincidence, really. They're both pretty painful when you encounter them, really, if you think about it. So anyway, he goes before Pilate. He's on trial before Pilate. And most of the time, he remains silent. Matthew doesn't tell us about his 
little John over to see Herod, but he doesn't speak to Herod either. He, he remains silent. Jesus, in the face of all these false accusations and this mocking and this attack and all of that, he most often chose silence as his response, which I don't know why you came here today. I hope that there's all good intentions, but maybe you came here today to hear that, <laughs> that silence is actually a choice when somebody says something. Just because you could say something doesn't mean you should say something. Sometimes you just need to lay the phone down and back away, walk away from the keyboard and let that just go. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, was mocked, attacked, accused, and he remained silent. Do you know what it feels like to be mocked? You know what it feels like to be made fun of? I'm not talking about middle school, right? Like, yes, we all got that. But I'm back, back past that, like, what about mocks for your faith? What about made fun of for how you have chosen to follow Jesus? Have you, that's a, there's a pain that comes from all, every one of these things. There's a real pain. We're not dismissing that at all. All we're saying is Jesus does really know how it feels. He really knows how it feels to be mocked and attacked. You've been mocked, you've been attacked verbally, physically, whatever it is. Like Jesus experienced all. They're spitting in his face. They're striking him. They're beating him. They're about to do even worse. He knows how that feels. You guys know the story with Peter. It's so familiar. I mean, Jesus is predicting his death one more time, and Peter's like, oh, no. I'm not going to fall away. I won't desert you. I won't leave you. If all these other jokers leave you, I will stay with you, even if I have to die. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. you even knew me three times. And then Peter follows at a distance. I mean, to his credit, right, to his credit, at the very beginning, he's like, okay, this is on. Let's fight. He pulls out a sword and shows us that he's just as good with a sword as he is at fishing, right? So, like, not... Swinging at the guy, cuts off an ear. I don't know how this happened. But then when Jesus says, put your sword up, he runs just like everybody else. And he's following, but he's keeping a distance. And then there he is in the courtyard, so he can, most likely he can see the trial going on, but he's not in that trial. He's kind of on the outside, safe distance looking in. A little servant girl says, hey, weren't you with him? He's like, no, not me. Don't you put me in that category. He moves away, another servant girl. Yeah, I think you were one of his disciples. Weren't you with him? And then he swears, I swear it wasn't me. And then one other person asks him, another one of the bystanders. Verse 74, then he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We know that story. Here's what I want you to hear today. Jesus knows how it feels to be rejected by those closest to him. I don't know if you can find anybody closer to Jesus than Peter. He's He's in the 12, he's in the 3, he's the spokesman, he's the rock that they're going to build the church on, Jesus is going to establish his church on, and Jesus knows how it feels when someone that close to you rejects you and denies you. You ever been rejected by somebody close to you? Family? Close friend? Lifelong friend? Been rejected? Felt the pain? Felt the sting? It hurts. And Jesus knows exactly how that feels. He knows exactly what that's like. If you go all the way down to chapter 27, 
Pilate is going to turn him over, verse 22. It says, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Jesus knows how it feels to be turned against by those on his side. Today is what we would call Palm Sunday. We're commemorating the fact that the Sunday before Easter Sunday, Jesus rode in on the donkey that Zechariah prophesied about, and everybody was there, the whole crowd. They're, sh- they're shouting, they're chanting, Hosanna, save us. It's a, it's, it's a celebration. They're welcoming their king on Sunday, Palm Sunday. And then on Friday, here they are outside of Pilate's court saying, crucify that man. Maybe some different crowd elements there, but still, same people, same area. And they had turned against him really, really quick. Just a matter of days, from Hosanna to kill him. Jesus knows what that feels like. He knows exactly what it feels like when people that you think are on your side turn against you. And man, we, we got that all in our culture today. When we think we're okay with everybody, and then all of a sudden we say something and we get canceled. You know, well, it's a new fear we have. Like, what if I say the wrong thing? And everybody seems to be okay with me, but then I say the wrong thing. I'm going to get canceled. I'm going to get turned against. Jesus knows exactly how it feels to have the crowd on your side and then turning against you, demanding that he be crucified. Jesus knows how all this feels. To be betrayed, to be falsely accused, to be mocked, attacked, rejected, turned against by those that seemingly were on your side. He knows how that feels. And so take encouragement in that. But it's way, way better, and it's way bigger than that. And I want you to see this passage in Hebrews chapter 4. It's one of the most encouraging passages in our Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says this. He's talking about Jesus as the high priest who has made that intercession before us, has made the sacrifice for us once and for all, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father and says, this high priest that we have, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's what it's saying. Jesus knows how you feel. He knows exactly how you feel. We don't have a high priest that's removed from everything, that's protected from everything, and hasn't experienced the things we experience. So it says that he has experienced what we experienced, that he was tempted in every way. He experienced the pains, the disappointments, the attacks, the rejections, the denials, all the things. He's experienced every single one of those things. He can sympathize, understand, and really empathize with our weaknesses and our struggles. He really can. Now look at verse 16 because it gets really good. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace the only chance we have of going to the throne is because of what jesus did so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need because he's able to sympathize with us because he knows how we feel and because he conquered sin and conquered death and conquered the grave and because he has all the power and all the authority because he's god he can help us We can go to him and find mercy and grace to help us in that time of need. So it means that when we experience betrayal, when we experience being falsely accused, when we experience being mocked or attacked or rejected or people turn against us, Jesus knows how we feel, but he can help us with it. 
He can get us through it. He can help us to persevere. He can, he can help us survive. He can help us walk through on the other side and come out better and stronger because of all the things that we experience. So he can really help us. We can go to him because he knows how it feels and he's got the power to help us. He can help us forgive the betrayer. He can help us forgive the attacker. He can help us forgive those that have falsely accused. I know it's hard. I know it's painful. I know it's not even what we necessarily want to do. But that's what Jesus came to do. He came to forgive the betrayer. He, he's, everything that he's enduring, the betrayal, the denial, the accusations, the trial, all of it, everything he's enduring is so that he can go to the cross and rescue us to provide forgiveness for all of the people that have rejected him. That's what he's come to do. And so because of that, because he's got the power, we know that he can help us not just overcome these struggles, but actually forgive these people. Forgive those that have hurt us. Forgive the ones that we trusted and hurt us the most. He gives us the opportunity to do that. And so we can come to him. So I, I hope that's encouraging. I hope every bit of that's encouraging. Jesus knows how you feel. doesn't matter what you go, you're going through. We could go on and on and look at other Parts of his life where he experienced things that we experienced. So I'm just talking about this passage today and the picture that we see here of the specific things that he knows how we feel when we endure it. But I want to turn it. I want to make sure that we're encouraged by that, but I also want us to see the whole picture of everything that's going on here. And I want to say it this way. We know how it feels to be Judas and Peter. Uh-oh. This is really encouraging. I'm so glad Jesus knows how we feel. But when we're talking about feelings and we talk about how we identify with people in this story, I hope that you understand that we really do, if we're honest, we know how it feels to be Judas and Peter. We, we got that. In this story, you see Judas betraying him with a kiss. You see all that. You see Peter denying he even knew him. Man, if you stop and think about how much we identify with them, it's a little bit scary. I mean, when I look at Judas' story, I, I, I want to ask, why? What in the world? Why would you do that? Everything you saw, everything you experienced, this closeness you had with Jesus, why would you betray him in that moment? We know that he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, so maybe it was just greed. Maybe it's just, I want some money. I, I, want, the, I want the silver, and maybe it's, I want that that riches more than I want Jesus in that moment. And he, he sold him out and he betrayed him for that. But man, when I stop and think about that, I think about all the times that I have pursued and valued and treasured something that wasn't Jesus and how I betray him when I pursue something above him. When I place something that's not God in the place of God in my life, I, I, that my life is a betrayal at that moment. I do that so often. It's so easy. It's so tempting to think something else can give me what I really, really want. But maybe it wasn't just greed. Maybe on some level, maybe he was just sick and tired of this plan. I mean, everybody wanted Jesus to come in and be the Messiah that overthrows the Romans and establishes his kingdom. And, hey, we're going to take charge now. That's why they were always arguing. Who's going to be right? Who's going to be left? And we're going to be the right-hand man of Jesus when he takes over. And maybe Judas had finally figured out that's not Jesus' plan because Jesus said it over and over. That's not the kind of kingdom I'm here to build. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to die. And maybe Judas was like, I'm done with God's plan. I'm done with Jesus' plan. He decided he, he would just sell him out because of it. 
I'm, getting, getting, I'm distancing myself from that guy. And that seems harsh until you stop and think about all the times that God has a plan or God leads us somewhere or God does something or brings something or allows something into our lives and we go, oh, no, 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 I don't want that. I don't want that plan. That plan's not for me. I'm going to make another plan over here. And we betray him. We walk away from him. We reject him. It's easy to remember that, man, we're a lot like Judas. And we're, we're like Peter. I mean, maybe we don't curse and swear that we don't know him. But how many times do we have an opportunity to speak for him and we, we remain silent? How many times do we do that? Where we have an opportunity and we, we shrink back away from we just we just stay silent. It's a denial. How, how many times does my life on Monday through Saturday look like everybody else? And my life is denying that I know him, denying that he's changed me, denying that he's given me a different way to see the world because I pursue and value and treasure and spend my time doing all the things that everybody else does, denying that Jesus is really who he is. Man, it's easy to feel like Peter. It's easy to feel like Judas. But if you look at the story, it's really interesting how their responses are so different. I mean, Judas... When he realizes what happened, he feels horrible about it. He, this is not a good thing. Like he, this is not where he may have thought it was going to go. And so he, he, he feels so bad, he tries to give the money back, and they won't take it. And then he feels so bad, that he basically realizes, man, I, I'm not part of this anymore. I'm a pariah at this point. I'm, I'm an outcast. I have no, no chance. And so he hangs himself. And Peter felt just as bad, didn't he? When that rooster crowed, he went away and wept bitterly. He knew he had let Jesus down. He knew he had denied Jesus in that moment. But later we know that Peter was restored, that he turned back to Jesus, that he repented. And Jesus restored him with open arms, welcoming him back in. Still going to use you to build the church. It reminds me of a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. You see these two responses. For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's Peter. His sorrow was godly sorrow. It, it was understanding how he had let Jesus down, and he turned away from it and turned back. He repented, and he found salvation with no regret. But Judas... Whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. When we just feel bad about what happened or we feel bad that we got caught or we wish we wouldn't have done that, it's just regret, it doesn't change anything. The only change is when we understand that, yes, we've messed up, we can turn back to Jesus, we can turn away from our sin, repent, turn back to him, and he welcomes us with open arms. Every single time, open arms, come back. Forgiveness, restoration, salvation, it waits. So how are you responding? When, when I start talking about how easily we identify with Judas and Peter and you think about how many times you deny him and live your life like he doesn't matter and how many times you pursue something other than him and trade following Jesus for this other thing, like, how do you respond to that? Do you feel bad? Oh, man, I probably shouldn't do that. Or I can't believe he called me out today. Or do you understand that God is waiting for you to turn away from that and turn back to him and he's got open arms. How we respond is so, so important. Now, there's one other guy in the story that you need to see. 
The one other name in the story that we can identify with. And it's interesting because not, not everybody gets their name in the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts, and not everybody's name is in there. Joseph's name is not in all the accounts. The husband of Mary, his name's not in there. All the disciples are not mentioned in every single account of the gospel. They're not mentioned by name. But one guy has his name in all four accounts, and it's this guy Barabbas. And what we need to understand is that we need to know how it feels to be Barabbas. Because in Barabbas' story is a picture of the gospel. Matthew 27, verse 15, at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Notorious criminal. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, well, what shall we do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Here's Barabbas, a criminal, guilty, sentenced to die. He says, who do you want me to let go? The guy who's innocent or the guy who's guilty? And they're like, give us the guilty guy, Barabbas. His story is so important. We need to understand and know how it feels to be Barabbas because his story is the gospel. The guilty man walks free and the innocent man is punished in his place. In his place, on the cross that was probably designed for Barabbas, that's where Jesus dies. He dies literally in his place. And that's the gospel because you and I are guilty before a holy God. But because of what Jesus does, the guilty go free while the innocent, the only person who's ever truly been innocent, is punished in our place. He takes the punishment that you and I should have had to take. He pays the penalty that you and I should have had to pay. We are all Barabbas, set free because of the grace of Jesus taking our place in that punishment. Every single one of us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus, when we place our faith and trust in him and Jesus and what he did on the cross and our faith is only in Jesus, when we place our faith in him, we might become, we receive this gift of the righteousness of God and we're restored to God because of what Jesus did. He's our only hope because we were all Barabbas, sentenced and guilty Jesus took our place. <laughs> I hope that you know how it feels to be Barabbas. If you don't, man, come talk to somebody. And what I mean is, if you don't know what it feels like to have Jesus take your place and put your faith and trust in him, come talk to us. Let me share the, the most amazing news you will ever hear. Because here's the deal. When you know how it feels to be Barabbas, that feeling won't stay as a feeling. It'll turn into faith. Because you'll see who Jesus is and what he's done. And when you have faith in him, you'll be willing to follow him anywhere. Wherever he calls, wherever he leads. I know he, I know he gets it. I know he feels what I feel. I know he, he understands. And I know he can help me. And so I will put my faith in him and I will follow him wherever he wants me to go. That's the gospel. Matthew 27, verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. That's where this is all going. It's always been going to the cross. This week, I hope that you will take some time to really prepare your hearts to celebrate this, to remember this. I hope you'll gather with us on Good Friday as we 
remember the death of Jesus and why it was necessary. Man, I hope you'll come back here on Sunday and celebrate the resurrection and the hope that only he could bring us. Let's trust him and let's follow him. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the truth that's in your word. I want to thank you for all of it. I want to thank you for the painful stories. When we see what you endure, Jesus, it's, it's painful to watch. But God, there's, there's victory on the other side of it. There's hope on the other side of it. And that was the only path. And so God, I, I, I want to thank you for that today. I want to thank you for the story. And I want to thank you for this truth that you really do know how we feel. You really do get it. But not just that. But we can come to you and you'll help us. No matter what it is we're going through. And you, you'll help us now. You'll help us here and now with, with all of it. But you help us with hope for all of eternity. And we thank you for that today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.